Hello everybody. Good evening and good day to all of you. Welcome to the 47th live episode of Ask Abhijit. I hope you're all doing well. Let us see who all is there with us tonight or today, wherever you are. I can see Rohan Gupta, Kartik Tanda, Yashwant Dvipen, Divij, Kingster Gaming, Tuntu, Abhay, Kiran Raj, Ankit, Eagle Eye, Abhaysha, Miru 2, Cosmos, Mohan Singh, Rishabh Sar, Sharma, Vladimir Putin, Kartik, Harshit 2.0, Saurabh Mishra, uh, SM3Day, Aryan, Chauhan, Hitman, Vedant, Sahil, Arnav, Amit, Aryan again, Sujoy Kumar Ghosh, Pritam, Tripti, Shaibal Chaudhary, Satoru Gojo, I Love Dota, Kiran Raj, Karan, Ayush Negi, Abhay Shah, John Price, Aryan Khanna, and so many more people. Good evening, good day to all of you. It is so nice to be back with you all live on a new episode. So today it's a live episode. I have not pre-selected any questions. I'm going to take your questions live from the chat. So go ahead, ask me questions. What shall we talk about today? You decide what we talk about today. Do we talk about history? Geopolitics, physics, science, astrophysics, aliens, philosophy, spirituality. Decide. You guys decide. All right. Please ask me some questions and I shall answer your questions. So let's see what questions we have. Okay. Aryan says, Aryan asks about the mistakes done by the great Sri Jawaharlal Nehru, the selected prime minister of India. Well, uh, I think people have written entire books about the mistakes that Sri Jawaharlal Nehru has made. I mean, uh, you can have several PhD theses on this particular topic. You can write numerous books on the mistakes that Mr. Nehru did. I can list a few from the very beginning. He allowed the Pakistanis to take over a significant portion of Kashmir and uh, Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. I mean, if he had waited for two or three days, the Indian army would have taken back all our all our territory. But he prevented them from doing it. And he said, we will go to the UN and we will resolve it amicably, which has never happened. We are still we are still not in a situation where this, uh, this issue is resolved. And, and the fact is that it was Indian territory. Why do you need to go to the UN, to a third party, to resolve the issue? Use your own armed forces. But he, he refused to do that. And that's why... We have this problem. Then you have the Indus Waters Treaty, the most unequal treaty in human history, most likely. I mean, treaties are done between two equal powers. India is an enormously larger power than Pakistan. And yet in the treaty, more than 80% of the waters of the Indus uh, region, they are allocated to Pakistan. Why such an unequal treaty? treaty? Why? Then he gave away the Cocoa Islands to Burma as a gift, as if it was his own property. He gave away Manipur's Kabo Valley to Burma again as a gift, as if it was his ancestral property. He refused the Sultan of Oman's offer to give India the port of Gwadar for free without any price. He refused that. I don't want that. He said, who the hell was he to decide he, he did not want that? Then he, he prevented Nepal from rejoining India. The king of Nepal wanted to rejoin India. He requested Mr. Nehru, he requested the Indian government to allow Nepal to rejoin India. Mr. Nehru said, no, I will not allow that. Then there were two offers. 
to India for a permanent membership of the UN Security Council. There were two offers in 1950 and 1955. The first offer was in 1950. The second offer was in 1955. Both the most powerful countries of the world, the US and the USSR, were together in this. They both wanted India to become a permanent member of the UN Security Council with veto power. Mr. Nehru said, no, I will not. I, I do not want this. It has to. It should be given to China first. First, give it to China. Then we will think about India. That's what he said. And these are just some, a few examples. Uh, the Article 370 in Kashmir, that was again his handiwork, Mr. Nehru. And so much more. He allowed Tibet to be taken over by China. India had a significant presence in Tibet at the time. Tibet was essentially a protectorate of the British Raj. And that mantle passed on to India after India's uh, the transfer of power to the Indian government in 1947. So India could have protected Tibet. India could have prevented China from invading and annexing Tibet. And instead of preventing that, Mr. Nehru ensured that the Chinese PLA, People's Enslavement Army or People's Liberation Army, he ensured that Indian rice was supplied to these invading soldiers. And had this Indian rice not been supplied to the Chinese invaders, they would never have been able to take over Tibet. So Nehru actively participated in China's invasion and annexation of Tibet. Tibet would not be a temporary part of China right now had it not been for Mr. Nehru. And there are so many other things that one can speak about. Uh, there are entire books written about this topic. Uh, so, so yeah, that in brief is uh, what Mr. Nehru did. Uh, he was in a way the architect of modern India. He ensured that India did not grow rapidly. He imposed his version of Fabian socialism and mediocrity on, on India, which led to the Nehruvian rate of growth, 1 or 2% per year. Instead of, I mean, when you have a newly uh, liberated country, when you have a developing economy, it can easily expand at the rate of 10% or more per year for a couple of decades. But Mr. Nehru choked and stifled all development in India which led to the Nehruvian rate of growth, which led to incredible misery and poverty, all artificially created. So these are some of the great achievements of Mr. Nehru, the, the one of the architects of modern India. India, if today it is a third world country, it is entirely or to a large part because of the policies of Mr. Nehru and of his successors who ran India for the best part of five, six, seven decades. So these are some of the contributions of Mr. Nehru to India. Good question. It's a good question. Okay, what else? This is by Tripti Parab. Tripti asks, why do people relate Hindu gods with aliens? Good question. I think it is mostly done in the West, but now because of the Western influence in India, even Indians are starting to believe that there may be some alien a connection when it comes to Hindu gods. See, when you watch the Marvel movies, you have all this entire pantheon of Nordic gods. You have Thor, you have Odin, you have Freya, and you have so many. You have uh, what's his name? Uh, what's the name? Uh, who, who is Thor's brother, half brother? The androgynous personality, very interesting character. Loki, isn't it? Loki. And then you have the the wolves. 
uh, Fenrir and the other wolf and so many more. This is, this is the entire Nordic pantheon of gods. Uh, Europe had a polytheistic culture before it was stamped out by Christianity about a thousand or so years ago. So the Marvel universe is all about the Nordic gods. Well, the truth is that the Nordic gods are European interpretations of the Roman and Greek gods which in turn are Roman and Greek interpretations of the original Indian Vedic pantheon. So you have the thunder god Indra, who is, whose main weapon is the hammer and the thunderbolt. And you have an entire pantheon of gods around him, which are which is represented in the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, the Slavic pantheon, the, the Ga Ga Gaulish pantheon, the Celtic pantheon, and the Nordic pantheon. Now, these gods, the ancient Vedic gods, they are the original superheroes. They had all these powers. I mean, they they are they were supposed to have all these supernatural and uh, superhuman powers. And if you examine the kind of powers they had, it does sound not like mythology or magic. It sounds like science fiction. Magic is something that is completely fantastic. It has no grounding in logic or reality. But science fiction is something that is hypothetically possible. Maybe in the future. Maybe if we have advanced enough technology. So if you look at the superhuman and uh, superhuman powers, superhero-like powers of the ancient Indian gods, it does sound like science fiction more than magic or fantasy or, or mythology. And that's why people have speculated, especially in the West, that maybe some aliens visited India and in the, the poor Indians, they started worshipping those aliens and go as gods. And that's how the ancient Vedic pantheon of gods was created. There is a speculation that has been recurring. It's a recurring theme or motif in, in the West. And you have all these... Uh, these uh, TV series like Ancient Aliens, etc., that portray Lord Shiva as, as an alien and they portray the, the great mountain Kailash, Mount Kailash as the center, which is considered to be the center of the universe, as some place which has some hidden uh, alien technology within or something like that and so on and so forth. This is just blind speculation. It has no basis or foundation in reality. They call themselves ancient alien theorists or something. I've seen a couple of episodes, very entertaining, but ridiculous. So that is the reason why people, uh, because Hindu gods seem, and ancient Hindu epics, etc., they seem to have not magic, but very advanced technology. That's why many people in the West, especially, try and relate Hindu gods with aliens. And today that nonsense is entering into India because Indians nowadays watch all these series which are available everywhere on TV and etc. And now these, these thoughts and these beliefs have permeated into the Indian consciousness to some extent. So that is the reason why they do it, but it has no basis in actual reality. Shaival says, is Stanik Zai a Russian origin name or a Pashtun origin name? Because whenever someone hears the word Stanik Zai, they compare that with a Slavic or Russian name. So I don't think, see, the Pashtun, the original Pashtun language, if you if you decontaminate it of the Turkic and Arabic and Persian words, it is nothing but an Indo-Aryan language or at most an Indo-Iranian language. Its, its grammar and its indigenous vocabulary is all rooted in Sanskrit. It is now 
filled it is now it it now is replete with a lot of arabic and turkic and persian words for sure so it does sound in some way similar to persian or even to uh, to to kashmiri in the dardic languages etc so if you look at the history of afghanistan in the past 1000 years there's a lot of foreign influence because afghanistan was the uh, frontier outpost of india gandhar and it was the first region to be invaded occupied and converted by the turks and uh, later on by various other influences as well so there's a lot of turkic influence there's a lot of there is a, a certain amount of arabic influence and there is a certain amount of persian influence as well in the pashto language and especially in the names of the people in afghanistan because today if you look at the names of the people of afghanistan these are all foreign names their ancestors did not have, have names like these their ancestors had sanskrit names so everything has been turned around converted and i think the word stanik zai yusuf zai this zai that zai it, these are turkic origin names i think zai i'm i'm not don't hold me to this uh if i recall correctly zai means descendant of or member of a tribe or something like that so stanik zai essentially means i think it means member of the stanik tribe or something like that so you have stanik zai you have yusuf zai and various other names which are all influenced by the turkic languages such as chagatai language and various other languages some of which are extinct some of which still persist in various parts of central asia etc so it is not a russian origin name it is not an indo iranian name it is not a pashtun origin name i think it is rooted in one of the turkic languages satoru gojo says what was the rivalry between nikola tesla and thomas edison does edison play a misunderstood figure in history um i haven't studied this part of history in great detail i know that there was a rivalry i believe that nikola tesla the serbian inventor and scientist was extraordinarily talented but he was not good with at at uh, business and finance and that's why he did not do well in life i think uh, he invented a, a great number of very interesting uh, inventions and i'm not sure if there was a rivalry with thomas edison i there may have been i am not entirely sure i think tesla advocated the alternating current and thomas edison was an advocate of direct current and clearly alternating alternating current uh, ac current voltages are far superior to the direct voltage and so on so i think there is an interesting story to it but i am not entirely sure i am i have not studied this specific episode of the history of science in any detail it's something that i would like to study in the future if i get the time yes it's an interesting chapter of history but you are right there was some kind of rivalry and clearly nikola tesla was a superior scientist in in this case okay some more questions some more questions abaisha says is it possible for a human to live more than a thousand years and do you believe in chiranjeevi like ashwatthama who are still alive while well, as far as i understand the uh the human lifespan doesn't typically exceed 100 years or so i think the average lifespan in most of the countries especially the developing countries is close to seven, in the 70s and 80s i think 
I think the Japanese are the longest lived people in the world. Their average lifespan may be in the early 80s, if I am approximately correct. And in the developing world, the life lifespans are still, um, average life expectancy is still less than that. So that is the averages of the world. I know that in the past, in India and other places, especially in the East, you have people who have lived very long lives, more than 100, sometimes in the 120s. I think there are people in Japan who have lived that sort of, uh, who have reached that, that sort of age, 110s, 120s. I think the oldest known person who lived the longest was in in his or her 140s, I think. So that's what we know from the data that we have. And we know that there is a process of, of aging. As you grow older, there are there is a certain biological process. The telomeres in, in the chromosomes, they, they start uh, shortening, etc. And that seems to contribute to the aging process in human beings. And eventually, uh, the, the, the aging reaches a level that uh, it is not possible to sustain life beyond a certain uh, beyond a certain limit of time so i from see as a scientist my perspective is very clear the data says that it is not possible to live a thousand years it's not possible typically to live more than 100 and 110 years or so it's very rare for somebody to cross 100 years even today uh, so from a purely scientific perspective from a data driven perspective no it's not possible there is no known instance proven instance of a human who has lived more than 140 or so years. So I think it is not possible given the evidence that we have. Do I believe in Chiranjeevi or immortals, immortals like Ashwatthama? Well, according to science, it's not possible for a person to be immortal or to live more than a thousand, more than, like I said, 140 years. So from a factual data-driven, evidence-driven perspective, it is not possible. Now, obviously, we know that. Uh, our understanding of science isn't complete. Our understanding of the of the universe, of nature, etc., of our own biology is very fragmentary. It's very rudimentary. We know almost next to nothing. We don't know about the brain. We don't know about the body. We don't know about nature, the universe. So it is possible that certain things may exist that seem unlikely from the perspective of the information that we currently have. So I am I am very skeptical. It is most likely it would not happen, but I would not rule it out 100%. I have an open mind. I do understand as a scientist that there are things that we still do not understand. I do know that. I do I do recognize the fact that th there are things that science still doesn't understand. It's not because science is wrong. It's because our understanding, our knowledge is incomplete and rudimentary. Science isn't wrong. Our understanding of science is incomplete. Our instruments are maybe not precise enough. Our senses may not sense everything uh, as, as deeply as we would want them to and so on. So I have an open mind. I would not say that uh, I would not certainly not make fun of anybody who believes in, in, in such possibilities. But from my perspective, I am extremely skeptical that anybody would live more than 130, 140 years. So that's my perspective. Right, let me see some more questions. Harsh Kumar says, why is the average height of Indians decreasing? You told that the people who invaded Europe were Indians, but Indians do not have that much height. Uh, well, I am 6'1". 
I'm six one. There are many people in, in in India who are much taller than me. If you, I mean, uh, do we have any data that that demonstrates that the average of the average height of Indians is decreasing? Because from what I have seen, the newer generations of kids are all taller and taller each each time. You go to any school or college, you look at the kids, the boys and girls. Good God, they're tall. By the time a boy or a girl is 12, 13, 14 years old, they are over five, five and a half feet. Some of them reach six feet by the time they are 15 or 16. I mean, I think the average height of Indians is increasing substantially. And yes, I did say that the people who invaded Indians uh, invaded Europe about 5,000 years ago were of Indian origin, the Yamnaya people. Now, the word Yamnaya. is not an indian word it's a russian word the word yamna means a pit in the ground in russian and these people they buried their deceased persons in pit graves that's why the russians called them the yamnaya people it's not an indian word okay it's a russian word so these people the yamnaya invaders of europe who totally transformed the genetics of europe overnight almost they were of indian origin they, they their predominant a uh, genetic lineage patrilineal lineage was r1b and as i have shown in the past uh, the the their physical features etc appearance was all indian they had light brown skin they had dark hair dark eyes and they looked like indians these reconstructions have been done it proves it beyond a doubt the genetics are also indian r1b which is uh, a descendant of the r1 lineage which originated in india and so on so yes they were indians and their average height was approximately 6 feet Six feet tall. They were horse riders. They were very active individuals. They were meat eaters, which means they did not follow the Vedic rituals after they left India. They became mlechas because they stopped following the Vedic rituals in their entirety. So they were invaders. They were horse riders. They were warriors, and they were meat eaters. They ate a lot of meat, and they drank a lot of milk and dairy products. If you live that sort of lifestyle, you're gonna be muscular, tall, and strong. it's all about lifestyle over a few over a few generations so yes they were of indians today indians why are indians uh, comparatively comparatively short today why is it let me explain why over the past 300 years before today the british systematically starved india we had over 100 million deaths minimum over a, a century and a half which were all the result the consequence of systematic deliberate artificially engineered famines which the british engineered when you don't have nutrition you got don't grow tall even after 1947 during the nehruvian regime and the congress regimes india was still starving because there was no growth in india the economy had been stifled by the socialist policies of this of these regimes and that's why indians did not have nutrition look at the indian sports teams in the past they were all short they were all thin look at the indian sports teams today don't you see the difference so that's the thing when you have sufficient nutrition you automatically <laughs> grow to your fullest potential i think that this entire um, The, the, you know in in sports especially there was this uh, this uh, this truism that indians are not a martial people they are not good at sports they are weak they are thin indians don't bowl fast was what they used to say in cricket today india has the most the deadliest fast bowling attack in the world so all this is myths it's nonsense look at data look at statistics think 
clearly think logically think analytically indians are not a short people what happened what you see what you have seen in recent times is the consequence of 300 years of of atrocious colonization and oppression and starvation now that india is finally uh, no longer in that situation you are seeing the average height of indians increasing significantly so that's the truth in fact no i don't know what is the vedic rashmi theory sorry <laughs> i i don't know what it is never had the time to study that who are the biharis the biharis are the descendants of the people of magadh uh, roughly that area i think uh, you had magadh which was in bihar its capital was patliputra right the ancient city of patliputra which is the modern city of patna which is still the capital of of uh, one of the major cities in india so the bihari people are the descendants of the great people of magadh that's what the bihari people are and of course they are not a separate race or a separate ethnicity they are indians we are all indians we may all look different because we are genetically so diverse and yet we are genetically very much alike so you have all kinds of different expressions of genetics in india you have shorter people you have taller people you have people with lighter skin people with darker skin people with various uh, with a variety of facial characteristics and phenotypes and all that and yet we are one ethnicity so the biharis are the descendants of the great people of magadh and they are very much an integral part of the indian population Akshay asks did Raja Bhoj kill Mahmud of Ghazni no as far as i know he did not do any such thing uh there is no evidence that he did so according to the historical records etc this such an event did not happen of course as we know history is often incorrect history is often full of lies so maybe maybe somebody may want to reexamine this chapter of history but as far as i know from the best evidence that we have from the historical consensus this did not happen all right ranjana asks did magic exist in the era of ramayan and mahabharat no magic does not exist there are things that may feel or sound like magic but that is always advanced technology a technology that is sufficiently advanced advanced is indistinguishable from magic so when i switch on a light bulb my cat or my dog would not understand that technology they would not understand how it works so they would think that we are magicians similarly if some somebody is in possession of a very advanced technology that i don't understand or we all don't understand that we that we may feel that it is magic but it is actually technology so magic doesn't exist all that exists is technology advanced technology now it does look like from the depictions of the warfare in the ramayana and mahabharat era it does look like like i said uh, science fiction it does sound like science fiction it sounds like you had extremely destructive weapons that were very well targeted etc that could be targeted uh In, in a variety of ways with your thoughts and so on so that sounds like science fiction that doesn't sound like magic that sounds like very advanced technology or did 
such technology actually exist. We don't have any ex- evidence of that today, but clearly the imagination at least did exist. And the imagination was thousands of years ahead of its time. And maybe the technology may even have existed, but we don't have any, any, any proof of that as of today. So that is the answer. Magic did not exist. Please talk, uh, Manika says, please talk about Jesus in Kashmir documentary. Is it true? Well, I haven't watched the, the documentary that you're referring to. Uh, I have never been uh, interested in the in this specific uh, story of, of Mr. Christ, of, of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, there is no historical evidence that uh, Mr. Jesus actually existed. Uh, it is all mythology it's all myths there is no hard evidence in the historical record in the archaeological record that jesus christ actually existed and therefore if we don't know whether he existed or not what is the evidence that he came to kashmir i mean what evidence does anybody have beyond tales beyond stories isn't that what the historians call mythology when it comes to india that you people have these tall tales and all but there is no evidence well, where's the evidence for Mr. Jesus Christ? And if there is no evidence for his existence, then what's the point of telling telling stories about him coming to India? So that's my position on on, on this particular matter. Uh, maybe uh, sorry, I think my mic was muted. So what I'm saying is that maybe he did exist. Uh, I am open to the possibility that Jesus Christ may have existed. And if he existed, maybe he he went somewhere, maybe he went to India, but what's the evidence? Do we have a single piece of hard evidence, incontrovertible evidence that proves this? No. So, so that's all I have to say about this. Uh, it's not something that interests me a lot. <laughs> Nita says... Uh, Jain people, Jain people, Jain. What's your specific question, Nita? Do you have a specific question on Jain people? Well, what about the Jain people? The Jain people are Indian people. The Jain dharma is a, is very much part of dharma. It is not a dharma, which means it is dharma. Well, dharma is the eternal dharma, Sanatan dharma, and therefore Jain dharma, the Jain perspective, the Jain philosophy, the Jain uh, worldview is a very important component of the larger dharmic tradition. And uh, I haven't really studied the history of Jainism in sufficient enough detail. We know that the uh, last great Tirthankar, Vardhaman Mahavir, uh, he was a Okay, so so Vardhaman Mahavir was a contemporary, it is believed, of uh, Gautam Buddha, roughly. And it is, uh, according to the Jain tradition, there were many more Tirthankars before Vardhaman Mahavir. And therefore, it looks like uh, from this evidence, from the from the uh, records of the of the of Jainism, it, it does look like uh, Jainism is Jaina Dharma is extraordinarily old, maybe as old as the overall Dharma itself. 
so that's what i can say about it maybe i shall study this in more detail in the future and perhaps in the future i may speak about this in, in with in, in more depth but what i can say is that jain dharma is is an extremely a uh, significant and important component of overall dharma and it is extremely old maybe as old as the entire dharmic tradition itself possibly perhaps aryan chakravarti says did ancient indians eat meat this is a very controversial topic no matter what answer i give i'm going to get some negative comments so listen according to the archaeological record see we know that indians we know that the indian subcontinent has been inhabited for about 70000 years the first place which was settled in a permanent manner after the out of africa invasion out of out of africa migration of the homo sapiens species the first place that was permanently settled was the indian subcontinent this happened about 70000 years before today and indians have been living in the indian subcontinent ever since the oldest genetic lineages whether they are patrilineal lineages or matrilineal lineages they are both indian lineages they both originated in the indian subcontinent haplogroup f in term in which is a patrilineal haplogroup and haplogroups m and n which are matrilineal haplogroups so india is the original out of africa founders zone right and according to the archaeological record we find evidence of fish hooks we find evidence of harpoons you know what's a harpoon it's a spear that you throw at at your at whatever animal you're hunting we find evidence of arrowheads and so on so it is clear that there was hunting activity in ancient india there was fishing activities in ancient india and we know that even during the time uh, of the mauryan dynasty meat eating was to some extent uh, prevalent we know that uh, the great gautam buddha his it is it is most likely that his last meal was pork his last meal before he uh, attained nirvana before, before he died so it is clear that indians did eat meat now according to dharma violence is not a good thing ahimsa is indeed the parma dharma so according to the dharmic scriptures according to the dharmic world view the superior way of living is to not eat meat the superior way of living is to be a vegetarian and refrain from violence even on helpless animals that is the better the superior way of living now everybody cannot live this lifestyle if you are a warrior you need more protein you need to be stronger physically and therefore it is quite common for the so called martial races the kshatriyas the rajputs the kings etc the aristocracy especially the warriors to eat meat so meat eating is indeed and has been historically prevalent especially among the warrior class in india so ancient indians did eat meat i am not saying i am not passing a value judgment on whether it is a good thing or a bad thing i think it is not nice it is not a good thing to to indulge in 
the slaughter of helpless animals if if it is possible to refrain from eating meat if it is possible to uh to uh eat sufficient protein without eating meat then it is the better way of living in my opinion it is definitely the right thing to do to be vegetarian or vegan or whatever you call it i think vegetarianism the indian way is the superior way in my opinion which is what our dharmic scriptures prescribe as the superior way of living but yes to answer your question in short after all this indians ancient indians to some extent some of them definitely did eat meat um Mohit says currently the Muslim Brotherhood, Pakistan, Qatar, Turkey are using propaganda against India. Assam case planning to ban Indian goods. Should we let that happen? Listen, what other people do is not in our control. What we can control is what we do with our policies and our actions. If Pakistan and Qatar and Turkey or whoever it is, I, I'm not sure. Well, I have not read about. uh any such event that they are planning to ban something indian goods or something if they do go ahead and ban something well how does it affect us we are an enormous economy and we have a global uh market so if these small countries like pakistan qatar turkey etc would want to ban trade with india well go ahead enjoy these are small economies they don't really matter to us anyway we don't have any trade any significant trade with pakistan and i don't know about turkey but who cares in case it is true i haven't heard any such news i i don't know what is the assam case but you know what will it happen we have plenty of other trading partners to to trade with it doesn't matter and uh, it would be I think it would be immature and stupid for them to do such a thing actually because it would expose the true motives and agenda. Okay, let's take some more questions my friends. Certain questions I have already answered. Listen guys, I it is impossible for me to answer every question. I would like to answer every question, but I will take questions that I have not answered before. So in case you have a question that I am not able to answer or or I'm not answering right now, I would request you to go to my channel after this session is done or maybe later and search for your specific question because I have answered hundreds of questions by now. I have put out all of these not all but many of these answers in the form of short clips. So in case I am not answering any of your questions right now go to my channel search for your question most likely it has been answered and most likely it is already there in the form of a short clip so maybe you can look that up so in case I don't answer your questions don't be discouraged I am just one person but I have answered hundreds of questions and these are all there many of them are still are already there on my channel so you can look that up now let's take some more questions uh Aikichi Onizuka looks like sounds like an anime name isn't it anime character is it okay uh, so the question is you said there are no traces of Chinggis Khan being a tyrant but it is said that he killed his brother or brothers when he was young you said the same for emperor Ashok please clarify excellent question excellent question the thing is this yes Chinggis Khan did kill one of his brothers whose name was Bekhtar so uh, 
this is when he was a teenager when his when his family had been uh, exiled and uh, expelled from their ancestral tribes the borjigin tribe so when uh, when temujin his his birth name was temujin when temujin's father died his father was the the chieftain of this borjigin tribe when temujin's father died there was a coup of sorts and one of his father's main warriors took over the leadership instead of temujin or one of his brothers which should have been done because, so it was a coup of sorts and temujin's family was expelled from the tribe and they were left to to die in the mongolian wilderness because in mongolia during the winters the temperature can go down to minus 30 degrees or so it is almost impossible for a family to survive without the support system of a tribal group so they were left to die but they managed to survive now this half brother of temujin bekter was stealing the food that was supposed to be shared among the entire family he was hunting and instead of sharing it with the family he was consuming it himself on the side and this was causing the family it it would have caused the family to die out of starvation because all of the food was being consumed by this one boy bekter who was elder to temujin so temujin and his brother kachun i believe they got together they hunted this guy down and they killed him it was fratricide it was the killing of their own brother but the only option there were only two options you either kill him or you all starve and he survives so i think that when so it was it was a harsh rough and very tough decision but when you are faced with the primal realities of survive of survival then maybe such a thing may be justified maybe we we live civilized lives we we don't ever we are never put in a position when you have where you have to take somebody's life and i hope it never happens to any of us but those was those were different days it was a different world it was a very very harsh world and i think he had to do what he had to do when you are rising to uh, to the leadership of a country you have to do harsh things if you want to serve your country and its people you have to first fight your way to the top and fighting your way to the top doesn't top doesn't happen with ahimsa and gandhian philosophy it is a tough harsh world it is survival of the fittest and only when you rise to the very top can you actually serve your people so you know morality and you know, armchair moralizing i'm not i'm not saying you're armchair moralizing i am saying it is a tendency for us who live in the 21st century comfortable peaceful lives we have a tendency to kind of moralize and pass judgments on people of who lived in other times but the world is a very harsh place it can again become very harsh overnight so i think he had to do what he had to do now when we compare him with ashok there is a very big difference yes ashok also killed his brothers his half brothers etc but after temujin killed his brother and eventually when he became the khan of the mongol people he was a very scrupulously fair king he was a very fair ruler he had a very clear set of laws which which applied to everybody irrespective of their position in the society it was a meritocracy it was 100% transparent and fair there was no persecution of people of any kind except for the enemies of the nation 
now when it comes to ashok he was a tyrant he oppressed his people he indulged in persecution of certain religious communities because they had opposed his actions in killing his brothers and in his family members and so on so he was a vindictive tyrannical person ashok did that he tyrannized his own people he oppressed his own people and he destroyed the kingdom of kalinga and in, in, indulged in horrific slaughter which was not really justified so chinggis khan invaded other countries only in retaliation there was no uh, only when there were just causes for war now was there any just cause for war between magadh and kalinga was there any just cause for ashok to go and invade and destroy kalinga there was none and yet he did that so there is a very significant difference between these two historical personalities between chinggis khan and, and ashok chinggis khan was by far the fairer and superior ruler in all ways in, in in a multiple in a multitude of ways compared to ashok the tyrant okay i can see some other questions that i have already answered please look them up if your question is not answered today look it up on my channel most likely you will find the answers okay this is a very good question uh, the question is you said that gandhi was a british stooge british agent etc but what personal benefit did he get why would a person forsake his family and live the life of a beggar he could have spent a luxurious life under the british listen everybody listen we are all motivated by different things some of us want wealth some of us want fame some of us want luxury some of us want to live a life of leisure without any work some of us are motivated by power and so on everybody has different motivations do not look at historical figures from your perspective maybe what motivates you is one thing but what maybe what motivates them is a different thing people who rise to the position of historical figures are not regular normal people their motivations are complex and often ordinary people don't understand those motivations now yes gandhi mohandas gandhi spent much of his political life wearing just a single piece of cloth a loin cloth he looked like a beggar yes but do you understand the lifestyle he led he had an army of servants his assistants and his entourage when he traveled by train he traveled in a third class compartment but he was the only traveler in that compartment the entire compartment would be booked for him it would be a third class compartment but he would travel like a king in that third class compartment there would be nobody else and there would be a couple of other compartments that would also be booked for mr gandhi and in those other two compartments his assistants his helpers and his his entire entourage would travel with him sarojini naidu said that it costs us a fortune to keep mr gandhi in apparent poverty it was not poverty it was not poverty he traveled one man in a, in an entire compartment so what if it's a third class compartment you have to go beyond what you see on the on a superficial level mr gandhi <laughs> he did not live the life of a beggar he had an army of people at his beck and call who would obey him instantaneously without question 
He had the entire machinery of the Congress party at his disposal, night and day. At a moment's notice, they will do whatever he said. Mohandas Gandhi was motivated by a number of factors. He was motivated by power. Power always trumps wealth. This is something I have been saying since the beginning of this channel. Power always trumps wealth. You may be enormously wealthy, but a politician can ruin your life in a minute. Jack Ma was incredibly wealthy. What happened to Jack Ma in China? Despite his enormous wealth, an ordinary worker of the Chinese Communist Party has more power than Jack Ma. And that has that is something we have seen in the past few months. If you look at the Jack Ma case and so on. So Gandhi did not need wealth. He had an army of servants and helpers and he had an entire political system at his disposal. He was motivated by power and he had other motivations. He was a lifelong servant of the British crown and he had certain other religious motivations also which I will not speak about today but if you examine his own writings then you will be able to discern what his motivations were. He was not a Hindu Dharma Guru. He was the opposite of that. So this is just a little bit about Mr. Bohandas Gandhi but you know what? He did spend a very luxurious life under the British. And he served the British, but he had incredible power in India. He had the entire machinery of the British-created Congress Party at his disposal. So these are the benefits he got. Did he forsake his family? Who said he forsook his family? Who says he forsook his family? Please study Gandhi's life in a little bit of detail. He never gave up his family. He never gave up anything. He had all the material world at his disposal. So, so I think it's a very good question. These are the things that Indians don't know because we simply study our history textbooks and then we form a certain mental image of these so-called leaders and that's what we believe in throughout our life. The information, the truth is available in the public domain. You don't have to buy books to study Gandhi. His own writings are available for free online. Study them. Dig a little deeper into the life and the writings of Mohandas Gandhi in his own words, by his own hand. And then you will be able to uncover the man behind the so-called Mahatma. All right. Next question. Next question. Um, let's see some more questions. Sushant Verma says, Why have we found remains of people from India, but we never bury someone as per the Vedas? I think the Indian Dharmic tradition is very complex. It's very old. And they see, it's not a monolithic tradition. In the past, people buried their death, their dead, their dead too. Even today, there are certain communities who are Hindu communities who buried their dead. So it's not a monolithic culture. It's a very diverse culture. And I don't think there is anything in the Vedas against burying somebody. And you also have this practice of uh, uh, Samadhi, right? Certain very enlightened people, sadhus, etc., they choose to end their lives in the samadhi state 
in which they consciously and voluntarily while meditating while sitting in the padmasan or some position while meditating they consciously decide to end their lives by voluntarily leaving their body and such people are never cremated they are buried we we have found uh, remains uh, skeletal remains of people buried several thousand years ago in the padmasan yogic position sitting in the padmasan padmasan uh, pose so this is clearly a state of samadhi so uh, there is just one small illustration of the way in which uh, you don't have a monolithic culture in india uh, so that is why we find we do find remains of people who have been buried you found the sanali burial too in which 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 was a coffin burial a great warrior and a lady as well and i think it's multiple individuals who were found buried in that manner so it's clear that you had cremations you also had burials even in the harappan uh, region in the saptasindhu region during the harappan phase of our civilization you find burials you find cemeteries but you also find pots containing burnt remains of human beings you know so people who were cremated and their ashes and whatever was left was buried in pots so you have a diversity a plurality of traditions within the ancient dharmic uh, continuum so that's why we find many uh, examples of burials in ancient india all right let's take some more questions uh what are my thoughts about demographic change in europe what will be the future of europe after 50 years explain deeply <laughs> uh yeah there seems to be a policy of uh, of so they call it multiculturalism and cultural enrichment or something whatever it is it's all about uh, bringing in lots of immigrants into europe and uh, giving them permanent residency in europe there are lots of people coming in from from various parts of africa as uh, as refugees and there are lots of people coming in from cent- uh, from from the middle eastern regions and europe many european countries most european countries are uh, pursuing this policy of of bringing all these people in and settling them in europe so there is going to be demographic change it's happening very fast in europe the nordic countries the nordic countries even 10 15 years ago had uh, very few non scandinavian people today you you have a significant foreign population there so yeah it is it is a very rapid and very significant demographic change i think in france more than 10 15% of the people are of non french origin and so on and so forth so yeah there is this policy that is being pursued in europe for, for whatever reason of changing the demographics and the culture of europe to some extent so i think after 50 years europe is going to be a very different place it's it will not feel like what europe like used to feel like maybe 10 20 years ago i mean if you went to europe in the 1980s 1990s even in the 2000s it was very different from what it is even today and in the next 50 years i think it's going to change a lot more what is the purpose of doing all this well i can only i can't even guess but that's what's being done today germany france the united kingdom 
all the EU nations, etc. Poland, for instance, is not allowing this to happen. They are against that. They are holding out. They will not accept refugees or, or migrants. I think even the Russians are not doing that. So some countries are not following this policy, but the majority of the EU nations are doing it. And what the purpose is, it's not, it's not clear to me as of today. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. <laughs> All right, let's take some more questions. Type 1 civilization, uh, Chaitanya asks, when do you think humanity will become a type 1 civilization? It's most likely that humanity may never become a type 1 civilization. Uh, see, the Kardashev scale is all about exploiting your resources, exploiting your planet. I don't think it's even a good idea to exploit the entirety of your planet and control all its resources and everything that happens. Because that means that you have enslaved uh all the non-human species and they are nothing more than resources i don't think that that's the way we should we should progress i think we are but one species on this planet i think all the species have the right to live as equals we are of course the predominating species so we can do things but i don't think it's a good idea to try and control the climate and the environment and everything it may end up causing more more harm than good because we don't have anything near the technology. And I don't know if humanity is going to reach the stage where it will be able to do it and control everything on the planet. There, there is something called the great filters because, uh, you know, there are things that happen that prevent a species from reaching that stage. As you know, humans, we humans are a very violent, very war-like species. Even our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, are very much like us. Very violent, very brutal, very war-like. It is in our nature to go to war. If you look at the history of humanity in the past 10,000 years, it's a history of warfare. It's a history of conflict. If you look at the history of the past 100 years, it's a history of warfare and conflict. And if we are always at war, and at conflict with each other, then how will we be able to cooperate and build the technology that can achieve a type 1 status for us? Because to achieve that sort of technology, we would all have to cooperate. We cannot keep fighting and competing with each other. We have to cooperate to reach that state. And therefore, I it seems kind of unlikely to me, given our nature, <laughs> our violent and uh, conflict driven nature, it seems unlikely that we may even reach their type 1 status. So I think it's unlikely. I, I personally think it's quite unlikely that we will achieve it anytime in the near future. All right, some more questions. Pulkit Dingra says, why are history books still spreading the colonial mindset? There are a number of factors. First of all, the entire academic system is mainly colonized. All of our academicians, they, they don't do any original research. I mean, less than 1% of India's academicians, teachers, professors, etc. do any actual research that benefits society. They 
what they do is they simply teach you textbook history whatever is written, written in textbooks and these textbooks have been teaching the same nonsense since the 19 since the 19th century uh and the system is such that it will not allow anybody to express contrary opinions there are many intelligent brilliant people in india even in academia but the moment you try to express a contrary opinion the moment you try to do some research that goes against the accepted narrative then the, when you do that you are marginalized you are pre- you are prevented from, from publishing or even if you publish the research you are not allowed to rise to a prominent position in academia and that's why the entire academic system is deeply mentally colonized i would say they are a bunch of jokers that's all they are unfortunately i was i have been intimately connected with academia my almost my whole life so i am the right person to say this that they are mostly a bunch of jokers they are all mentally colonized they 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 and it is in their benefit to keep the system the way it is because they owe everything to the system and then you have the the larger system the non academic system the bureaucracy of india the governance system etc the politicians they also benefit from the colonial mindset because the moment indians actually understand and be, what's really happening what's really happened and the moment indians decolonize their mindset the entire political system will crumble the parties that have been exploiting divisions between indians for decades they will lose their political capital they will fall out of power for example the aryan dravidian theory the divide which is a fake divide well all the dravidian parties in southern india that is their staple political position the moment this theory is proved wrong which it is but the moment the textbooks start teaching the fact that this is a fake theory and when the students start understanding this then they will no longer vote for those parties which have been spreading lies for decades so that is the reason why the politicians the bureaucrats the academicians they are all in this together they want to keep india colonized because they benefit from it that's the that's the sad truth so that is why india's history textbooks are still spreading the colonial mindset they are still worshiping gandhi and nehru they are still portraying india's foreign invaders and occupiers as india's saviors and they are portraying indian india's indigenous culture as primitive and backward and regressive and patriarchal and misogynistic and casteist and what not all lies so that's the reason why why we have we are in this position right now <laughs> neha asks what should i do apart from learning sanskrit to become a good hindu to be a good hindu you only have to be a good person you don't even have to study sanskrit as long as you are a good person you will be a good hindu i would say uh uh what else could i recommend see the thing you should do is you need to not you not only you neha but everybody we what we need to do is we need to learn our true history we need to decolonize our mindset from what our teachers our professors and our textbooks are teaching us that we are a backward people our culture was backward and and evil and all that once we understand that once we acquire a degree of self respect then 
we can be better hindus i would say and of course one would to to be a hindu you would you would need to know something about uh, our scriptures and all that and that's why you do need to you can study scriptures etc our ancient uh, vedas books etc through english translations but very often these english translations are deliberately uh, they deliberately distort some of these texts to, to make it look like the these texts are are misogynistic or casteist or 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 regressive or patriarchal or whatever you know that's why the best thing to do is to learn sanskrit and read the actual sanskrit texts otherwise you can read it in your mother tongue whatever it is hindi or whatever you know that is a better option than than studying it in english so there are a number of things you can do to become a better human being if you become a better human being you will be a better hindu uh hinduism is about acceptance it's about seeing everybody as equals it's not about imposing a certain world view on people and saying that if you don't believe in my world view or accept what i say then you will go to hell so hinduism is very different from the abrahamic religions as long as you don't live an abrahamic life you are a, you are a good hindu so there's a number of things that can be done but i would say that learning sanskrit will build is is essentially the foundation to studying the texts of hinduism and to build the self respect and understand the richness of our culture so that in brief is some of the things you could do okay let's take some more questions Uh, Harsh Kumar says, "My friend thinks that religion is the root cause of every wrong thing happening. How should I convince him?" You know, Harsh, your friend is right. Religion is the root cause of everything that has gone wrong in the world in the past one thousand years. Religion, religion is bad. Dharma is not religion. <laughs> There are three religions. those are the abrahamic religions a religion is something that has one prophet one god and one book the definition of a religion is a system that has one book one god and one prophet it accepts nothing else it says that our way is the only way everything else is is wrong everybody else is an infidel who need to either be killed or they need, or they will go to hell and burn in hell that is religion so religion is the root cause of everything bad that's happening in the world or which has happened bad, wrong which has gone wrong in the world in the past 1000 or so years dharma is not religion religions are the opposite the antithesis of dharma so you have the dharmic tradition which incorporates what we call hinduism and buddhism and jainism and sikhism but it also incorporates many animistic beliefs uh the mongolian version of dharma is also very much valid with the swayambhu symbol and all that then you have the indonesian versions of dharma which existed in the past you have the vietnamese champa version of dharma which was dharma with champa characteristics you have the shinto dharma in in japan which is an animistic uh a tradition which has syncretized very well with the bodha and other dharma so all of this is not religion it is dharma 
dharma is the antithesis of religion religion is the antithesis of dharma it is these exclusivist supremacist religions the abrahamic religions that are the root cause of everything that's going wrong in the world it is what led to the colonization of most of the non european world the americas africa asia india especially all the horrors of colonization all the genocides they are caused they were caused by these religions so yes your friend is correct religion is the root cause of everything wrong but dharma is not religion dharma is the right way to go is the way to go okay some more questions fourth dimension says don't you think we got behind due to our lack of technology progress you know what india was the most technologically advanced civilization in the known universe in the in the old days look at the harappan era uh, archaeological record we had the most advanced hydro engineering uh, uh, architecture and all that way more advanced than any other ancient civilization way more advanced than uh, mesopotamia babylon egypt and all that yeah we did not build those enormous pyramids because we did not have that sort of mindset of of enslaving people and making them do such work but we had the most superior technology it is not only about technology it's also about leadership the reason we got we we fell behind was because of the prithviraj chauhan syndrome we forgot what our great teacher acharya vishnugupta chanakya taught us and we started treating barbarians and brutal people with compassion and we started treating them as equals we started tolerating adharma and that's why we fell behind it had nothing to do with technology you may have the most advanced weaponry but if you think your enemy is your friend you are doomed and when you have your enemy at your mercy but you let him go then no matter how much technology you have it's going to be of no use to you that is the reason for india's decline and today india is still behind because we worship people like mohandas gandhi that defeatist person who imbued infused our minds with this defeatist attitude that you should just be passive be non reactive don't try to progress don't industrialize stay poor your only livelihood should be from weaving khadi just enough to put a few morsels of food in your mouth that mindset is the enemy of progress so it is these wrong mindsets these harmful mindsets and these harmful people these enemies of our civilization who have caused us to go behind it has nothing to do with technology even today we have nuclear weapons we have delivery systems we have everything and still we are a soft state until 10 years ago we would not even retaliate to pakistani atrocities like the 2008 mumbai attacks or the 2006 mumbai bombings or so many other terrorist attacks in india despite having nuclear weapons despite having the delivery systems despite having an overwhelmingly powerful military we were not reacting it has nothing to do with technology it has all to do with your mindset and the kind of leaders you have so that is the reason why india was enslaved for a thousand years that is the root cause of india's 1000 years of humiliation 
And it is something that should never happen again. It will not happen if you all, my friends, learn this and understand this. That's the reason why I've been talking for all these episodes. Okay, let's take some more questions. I'll do another 10-15 minutes, all right? Okay, what's my prediction about the expansion of Israel, capturing Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, etc.? I do not see any such thing happening. Uh, I do not see the Middle East going to war again in the in the foreseeable future, in the near future. I think Israel is now beginning to uh, beginning to invest in friendly relations with the with various Middle Eastern countries. You had the Abraham Accords that uh, took place during uh, President Trump's uh, presidency. So uh, I think the UAE now has an official embassy in Israel. The Israelis also have an embassy there. I think even the Saudis may be on the verge of of, uh, establishing diplomatic relations with Israel and so on. So I think Israel is now trying to invest in good, friendly relationships with its Middle Eastern Islamic neighbors. I don't think why it should be, uh, why it should not happen. It it is quite likely that if you uh, play the diplomatic game properly and if you assure your your neighbors that you don't have any ill feelings or any any ambitions of of destroying them, then I I don't think, I don't see why they cannot have good relations. So I do not see any uh, any desire in Israel for expanding further and capturing the territories of Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, etc. Yes, there are territorial disputes, there are all these grey areas and all, but I do not see an expansionist uh, uh, tendency from Israel in the near future. Amrit says, is the Evergrande crisis going to destroy China's economy? Well, Evergrande is one of the major uh, companies. I think it's a real estate company, is it? Or something like that. So yeah, it's going through a crisis. There is a lot about China that is quite opaque. China is not a transparent economy. It's not a transparent nation. There is so much happening behind the scenes that the Chinese Communist Party is hiding from the world. It is quite likely that the economic miracle in China has ground to a halt. The past few years, China has not been growing at 10% plus. It's been growing officially at around 6%. And actually, in reality, the growth may be maybe even less than 2%. So the economic machine has most likely ground to a halt. And there are a lot of problems in the Chinese economy today. Structural fundamental flaws in the economy that could possibly lead to major problems in China. So the Evergrande crisis may just be one of the symptoms of a much deeper disease that afflicts the Chinese economy. It looks like China is going through a number of crises. There is a power crisis in China right now. Many parts of China are without power. There is a lack of coal and uh, and so much more. So it looks like the Chinese miracle is now slowing down significantly and that could cause uh, problems worldwide, 
especially in the Asia Pacific region, especially in China's neighborhood, it could uh, cause some panic in China, and they may they may perhaps indulge in some military misadventures to divert the attention of the people. That is a possibility, and so on. So it's it's a time for all of us to be vigilant, to wait and watch, and be very careful about what China is doing, especially in the in the coming few years. Crox uh, asks, is a startup like SpaceX possible in India? I think there is nothing that's impossible in India. All that needs to happen is the government needs to get out of the way. Right now, it's impossible in the current economic climate, in the the kind of regulations and bureaucracy that you have. It's almost impossible to start a profitable startup in India. There are so many problems that one does not speak about. The moment you become profitable, there are these additional taxes that are imposed upon you by the local powers, politicians, bureaucracy, etc. And so on. So it's almost impossible as of today to have a profitable startup in India. It's almost impossible. So I think what needs to happen in India is reforms. We need to, cra- we need to crack down on corruption. Corruption is the biggest hidden problem in India. The ent- Almost the entire Indian governance system, to some extent or the other, I am not saying everyone is corrupt. There are definitely people with a great amount of integrity in India's bureaucracy, in India's political system, in India's governance system. But a significant percentage, a significant portion of this system is rotten. And corruption is what is holding India's economy and India's growth down. If corruption is eradicated, everything is possible in India. So I would say that that's what needs to happen. India needs to, one of these days, start a war on corruption. It's going to be hard, it's going to be painful, but that is the last step in unleashing India's full potential. So that's what needs to happen. So yes, if we can do that, if the government can take up this this big project of destroying corruption in India, then anything is possible in India. You can have 10 startups like SpaceX in this country. There are so many brilliant, talented engineers and scientists, people who are passionate about uh, rocket science, aeronautics and all that. It, it, I don't see any shortage of talented people, engineers and scientists in India. It's all about creating the right environment where a startup can actually become profitable and where you have the, the uh, right kind of ecosystem where you can get angel investment, funding and all that. Today, even if you have a great idea and you are good at business, it's very hard to get funding. It's very hard to to get the kind of funding that you need. So all these things need to happen. The right kind of system needs to be put in place. The kind of system that was once there in Silicon Valley in California. So if we can do that, if the government can take this up, then anything is possible. India is a land of incredible, immense, untapped potential. That's what we need to unleash. 
All right, some more questions. Some more questions. Uh, should Hindus eat non-veg? It's your personal choice. There is no compulsion in Hinduism. Uh, it's it's your personal choice. I would say that eating, I would say that being a vegetarian is the superior way of life. It is what our shastras and our 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 uh, teachings say that it is better. It is it is a superior way of life if you do not indulge in the eating of meat or in in the slaughter of helpless animals. So that is a better way of living. But you know it's it. it it's also been a part of Hinduism. So it's your choice, personal choice, what you want to do. There is no right or wrong. They, it is to some extent wrong, but it is not a, an enormous sin or it is not something that is taboo in Indian culture, in Hinduism. So at the end of the day, it's an individual choice. This is an interesting question. Is there even a slight chance of Indian North Sentinel Island people knowing the Indus Valley script or is there no linguistics? Uh, these people are the last possible uncontacted tribe on our planet. Um, they are completely isolated. We don't know what language they speak. I'm sure they have some language that must be a very old language, very ancient language. Uh, we don't know what language they speak. Nobody has studied that. I don't think they have any script, any written script or anything. So most likely, I would say 99.99%. I don't think there is any connection between them and the Indus Valley script or language. I don't think there was any contact between these people's ancestors and our ancestors from the Harappan era of our civilization. So most likely, there was no such connection. Paramjit says, hello from Stockholm. Hello, Paramjit. Do you think that Pakistan was hiding bin Laden? Uh, yes, Pakistan was hiding bin Laden. We know he, they, were, they were hiding him. The, the, this, the compound in which he was living for many years, where he was hiding for many years, was right next to the Pakistani military academy in Abbottabad. So it's clear that they kept him where they could observe him and monitor him at all times. So yes, it is well known now by now that Pakistan was actively, the Pakistani military and ISI were actively hiding bin Laden. They were very much aware of his presence right next to their military academy. So yes, Pakistan was indeed hiding Osama bin Laden. Is eating beef acceptable in Hinduism? No, it is not acceptable in Hinduism. If you eat beef, you're not a Hindu. Of course, there are people who do practice Hinduism, who do uh, eat beef as well. So that is the, the, the conundrum, that is the thing about modernity, about India being so deeply mentally colonized that these practices have now crept into India. There are people who are Hindu by name and who may even practice some forms of Hinduism, some rituals, some traditions 
and yet who do eat, eat beef and they feel there's nothing wrong with it. But according to Hindu tradition, eating beef is a great sin. So yeah, I would say that it is not acceptable in Hinduism. Tushar says monarchy or democracy. Well, there is no right system. There is no wrong system. India is a democracy today, a Western style democracy with the British style Westminster system, parliamentary system and all that. Right? That's what we have today. Now, think back to the last time when India was a great culture, a great civilization. What was the system then? (laughs) Was it a Western style democracy or was it a monarchy? If you look back at India's history, the times when India has been at its greatest when India has been the greatest civilization was when we had emperors and monarchs. That is an undeniable fact. But it is also true at the same time that India is the mother of democracy. Democracy is not a Greek invention. It is something that emerged out of ancient India. We had a hybrid system. We would have a king or an emperor or a queen, but that individual was duty-bound to listen to the people and to obey the people's wishes. Their highest morality for the king was the long-term prosperity of the kingdom and the people. And they would have an advisory council who would advise them and and who, who could override a decision of the king or the emperor. That was also there. So India had a hybrid system. We had kings and emperors and queens, but we also had democracy at the local uh, levels and all, and all that. So there is no right system or wrong system. Whatever works best for your country is the right system. Every country is different. Every culture, every civilization is different. India is the oldest civilization that we know of. It is the oldest continuously existing civilization. So I would say that we need to re-examine the way we are governing the country, the kind of system we have accepted. It is an inferior system this Western system, I would say it would be much better if we were to examine our history and draw inspiration from the, the era in which we were the greatest and the most prosperous and most successful civilization and most advanced civilization of all time. What was the system of governance then? We should try and replicate that. I am, I am not against that. I have nothing against any specific system, but what the bottom line is that the country and the people must prosper. That is the bottom line. So it doesn't matter what system you use. It doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. So monarchy, if it works, who cares? Let it work. Or even if you can make democracy work, great. Or maybe you can have a hybrid system like we always had in the past. So it's all about that. It's all about the national interest and the prosperity of the country and the people. That's all it is. That's the only thing that matters. La la la. (laughs) All right. La la la. Back to you, sir. (laughs) Uh, Is Putin's iron-fisted rule keeping Russia together or is it destroying Russia? Well, I don't see any signs of the destruction of Russia. Russia was on the brink of destruction during Boris Yeltsin's rule. The guy was a weak ruler. When you have a country as large as Russia, you need a strong ruler. You need a strong leader. 
Boris Yeltsin was ah, he was essentially a Western puppet, and Russia survived because Vladimir Putin came to power. It is his iron-fisted rule that is keeping Russia together. If you have a weak leader, then a country as large as Russia is bound to fragment and disintegrate. The larger the country, the stronger the leaders you need. So it is Putin's iron-fisted rule that is keeping Russia together. The only question is what sort of succession plan does he have? Because he will not live forever. He will not rule forever. So what kind of succession plan does he have in mind? I hope he's planning something. He's creating some system of succession that will continue his legacy forward. Otherwise, after he is done, then if a weak ruler comes uh, to power in his position, then again, Russia may go down the same way as it did during Boris Yeltsin's time. Okay, Mivan Srivastava, if the Aryan migration theory is false, then how is it possible for the oldest swastika to be found in Eastern Europe, which dates thousands of years before the oldest one in India? This one is a fact. You are right, sir. This is a fact. The oldest known swastika-like carving is something that was found in Ukraine. It's about 11,000 years old. So, what does it say? Does it prove that the Aryan migration theory is false? Or is it, does it prove that it's true? Does it, does it mean that there was an Aryan invasion of India? It proves nothing. There has been absolutely no archaeology done in India. 99.9% of India's archaeological truth is still buried underground. So if you don't do any archaeology in India and you, found some, and you find something elsewhere, then you cannot say that it means everything came from outside. This is a logical inconsistency. It's a logical flaw. There is no logic to this claim. You find swastikas in Africa. You find swastikas in Southern America, in Northern America. You find swastikas throughout the inhabited world. And swastikas have been found in every continent, I think ex with the exception of, of Australia. They have been found everywhere. And all of these are several thousand years old. So it is more likely that the swastika is something that emerged as a symbol of auspiciousness across the world. I am not making the claim that it came from India. I have never made the claim. But it's only in India today that that, that tradition still continues. So there is no real connection between the swastika and the Aryan invasion migration theory. Uh, to try and connect those two is a terrific <laughs> logical uh, flaw right it's it's a it's a leap of logic that is not logical at all okay let us take one more question one more question okay you said that women and transgenders were treated equally in ancient bharat but in the mahabharat bhishma refused to attack shikhandi saying it is Kshatriya Dharma not to attack women. Yes, absolutely. It is part of Indian culture to not ever attack women. Women are never to be subjected to violence. Do you mean that there is inequality if you treat women with higher respect than men? I don't see the logic here. Women and transgenders and all, whatever it was, they were all 
treated with respect and the way of showing respect to women who are physically weaker than men is to never ever attack a woman physically that is the way you show respect it is a biological fact that women that females are much weaker physically than men they lack the hormone that ma- makes men strong testosterone and therefore women are physically weaker than the males and therefore if you want to respect women you must never ever physically attack them no matter what the situation that is the way of showing respect it's not about treating equally it's about showing people adequate and proper respect equality is nonsense there is no equality equality is a mirage it's it's a myth i have never said everybody was treated equally i said everybody got the respect that that everybody deserves so if 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 a gender is weaker you have to treat them differently than the stronger gender women typically do, do not fight in wars it is only as a last resort that women have had to fight in wars in india as warriors but typically women have never been part of the armed forces today the indian supreme court is saying that women should be part of the armed forces that is stupid don't we have 1.3 million people in india half of which are males why do we need women in the armed forces why it is known that women are physically weaker than men why do we need to force women even if they feel that they are strong and all why i mean it doesn't make sense your soldiers your armed forces should be the strongest fittest possible individuals you can find and on average the average male is stronger than the strongest woman so this doesn't make sense so my point is that everybody was not treated equally some people were treated with more respect women were treated with more respect than men so bishma refused to attack shikandi because shikandi was not a male and that was the appropriate thing to do i don't see why it is a problem i do not see why it is a problem at all indian culture is not western liberal woke nonsense indian culture is superior and this is the way it was done in india and that is the reason why bishma refused to attack shikandi because it is against dharma to attack a non male person a person who is weaker than you that is the way of dharma and that's the answer i i hope it makes sense all right all right all right let's take one more question or maybe a couple of more questions meet says please tell us about underwater cities found near the gulf of kambat many years ago which is said to be from at least 7500 bce and why is there no serious research done till today like i have said just a couple of minutes ago there is no archaeology being done in india no serious archaeology we know that there are underwater cities in the gulf of kambat we have found the city of dwarka in uh, off the coast of the shore of present day modern dwarka exactly where the mahabharat said it would be it would be found and uh, one of the pieces of wood that was carbon dated from that sunken city is more than 8000 uh, or 9000 years old so it and, and and it is known that it is not that that ancient dwarka is not the only sunken city in this region there are many man made structures under the sea in the gulf of kambat and i am sure all across the coastline of india and yet nobody is researching this the asi is not uh, taking the initiative 
to go and investigate this because they have their own agenda, which is of glorifying the Mughals and the British and of restoring the Mughal monuments and British monuments. It's all about the bureaucracy and what their agenda is. The ASI is a bureaucratic organization. They are not professional archaeologists. They are bureaucrats. There are some among them, a few, a very few, who are actually good. People like uh, uh, S.R. Rao and Dr. B.B. Lal, etc., who were really great archaeologists. But the majority of them are mentally colonized fools. They are responsible for the wholesale, for overseeing and doing nothing about the wholesale theft of Indian antiquities from temples and archaeological uh, sites and all. So that is the reason why they are not doing anything. It will take some action from the government, from the central government to wake the ASI up. I would say that the ASI, Archaeological Survey of India, needs to be disbanded and a new professional body needs to be created in its place with proper funding. Only then will serious research ever begin in India. And only then will we be able to uncover the truth about our ancient past. Okay, okay, I think that's enough for today. I've taken a number of questions. It's almost one hour, 40 minutes. So guys, thank you very much for all your questions. Thank you for your viewership. I am always and forever grateful that you all choose to come and watch and participate in these live sessions. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you who have become members. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Thank you for all your support, all your comments, all your messages of support. I am very, very grateful. So I'm going to end this now. Uh, we will have another session just like this tomorrow, same time, 9 p.m. India. So I will see you then. And I will take more questions at that time. Thank you very much to all of you. Have a good day. Have a good night. Bye. See you tomorrow.